There's no doubt this is a transformational piece of legislation. It is, I think, a once in a lifetime opportunity. It will change, you know, change the course of our nation. I absolutely agree with you. And as I think about, you know, like the space, you know, the space race in the 60s or, you know, other moments in our history when we have sort of galvanized technology and innovation, this is it. This is the Solar Disruption Theory. Welcome back to part two of our two-part series with Abby Hopper, the CEO and president of SIA, the Solar Energy Industry Association. She's got with her the SVP of Supply Chain and Sustainability, John Smirnow. And let's get right back into it. All right. And to dive a little bit more into the numbers of, you know, why it's so beneficial. Why is Freedom who is so focused on installing solar, wanting to get into the manufacturing business. <laughs> I know why, but I mean, the credits and the benefits that are in the IRA are just amazing. So I'd love yeah, to so the, break it, that down. It, and then also like talk not only about that, but then cells, wafers yeah. and poly, because yep. you mentioned it earlier, like Qcell, all right, who is a, is a module supplier just announced a $2.5 billion plan to move the entire supply chain, including polysilicon, which is, I, I cannot believe we're even having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I don't fantastic. work with QCell, but yeah. I'm so proud of them yeah. that they're the first company to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, QCell is on our board and we're proud of them as well. Um, so it's it, it's all stems from the SEMA, uh, Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act, which was, um, put forth by Senator John Ossoff from, uh, from Georgia. Uh, we have today, this is changing quickly because of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, but we do have uh, significant gaps in the solar supply chain. Polysilicon, um, we have decent amount of polysilicon capacity in the U.S., four plants but around the country, uh, but we don't make um, solar ingots and wafers. That's uh, to get to a solar panel you start with a raw material called quartzite, and then you turn that into polysilicon, and then uh, you form the polysilicon into an ingot, and you chop that up into wafers. Wafers become cells, and then cells become finished modules. At the high level, that's that's the supply chain. We, we can supply the US probably for the next couple of years with American polysilicon. Um, we also um, are, have suppliers in Germany and Malaysia, China as well. Um, but it's getting harder to bring polysilic products with Chinese polysilicon into the U.S. No domestic production capacity for ingots and wafers. No domestic production capacity for cells. Decent amount of production capacity for modules. Today, we probably have capacity to produce a third of, the, of what the U.S. consumes um, in solar panels. A lot of the new investments, announcements that have been made tied to the Inflation Reduction Act are in the module manufacturing space. So we're comfortable that in two, three, four years, as deployment increases dramatically, that module production supply is going to, in the U.S., is going to grow with that. Um, but the, the SEMA, Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act, directly incentivizes new U.S. manufacturing investments with a tax credit. So if you sell a kilogram of polysilicon, you get a $3 per kilogram tax credit. If you produce a solar panel in the United States, you get 
a seven produce and sell in the United States, you get a seven cents per watt tax credit. You get a four cents per watt tax credit for cells. And so um, what we helped the government design was let's, uh, and through the tax code, let's set up the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act to target the key elements of the supply chain, polysilicon, ingots, wafers, cells, modules, inverters as well is another one, um, encapsulant, so the polymer uh, materials, and there are also similar tax credits for energy storage. Mm -hmm. So if you produce, um, assemble uh, cells, battery cells into a finished battery, you get a tax credit for that. If you produce the cells in the US, you get a tax credit for that. So directly incentivizing companies to build factories here, sell those products in the United States. And then once those are grown up, then they're gonna pull in all of that man new manufacturing for the key segments, are then gonna pull in the more, um, you know, solar glass, we don't make solar glass in the US. The junction box that goes on the back of a solar panel and has all the electrical components. We don't make those in the US. So we're not directly incentivizing those. All of these raw materials are necessarily, we believe, going to eventually, a lot of those are going to move to the US because they're going to have a market in which to sell their products, 30, 40, 50 gigawatts. Our goal, SIA's goal, when um, Senator Ossoff announced the, the SEMA Act, um, we set a goal of 50 gigawatts of domestic production capacity by 2030 for each of these key segments. For We want 50 gigawatts of polysilicon production capacity, 50 gigawatts of Inga wafer, each of the key elements. And we think we're really well on our way to getting there. Yeah, and, and by the time this podcast airs, we'll probably be announcing uh, a two gigawatt facility, which That's is great. what we're looking at. That's and. I can't believe I'm even saying that, all right, because it wasn't even on my radar six months ago. And in fact, in my private equity background, I had one manufacturing company. It was very successful financially, but it was a nightmare to operate, all right? Like something was always going wrong with the line. Well, they had one line, then you got to build a second line in case the first one goes down. A hundred things out of a hundred have to go right. Otherwise, the, so it's the last thing I want to do, but I mean, seven cents is enormous like yeah, we are true. looking in our business yeah. if we can shave one hundredth of a penny a watt yeah. um at the size that is over a million dollars for us yeah we tried to um for each of the incentives we tried to come up with a number that was a, a, in the range of a 30 percent uh credit polysilicon you know it's prices is, is you know we discussed earlier is very volatile um but the average price of polysilicon can range from on the low end six dollars a kilogram. Recently, it's been as high as forty, but it should be settling into like the high teens in that range. So, you know, three dollars a kilogram. If it's you know fifteen dollars is the cost. That's that's significant. Each of these segments of the industry are getting a thirty percent tax credit to incent them to build these factories in the U.S. They're also um, there's also another investment called 48C. So if you build a new factory in the U.S. or if you buy new equipment to existing factory, you can apply to the U.S. government to get a 30% tax credit. That 48C is largely going to be, we think, targeting equipment manufacturing and raw material supplies because on its face, you're not able to take both 
the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America, the SEMA credit, and 48C. So we think SEMA is designed for that, those key elements of the market, and then a lot of the gap filling can be used through the 48C um, tax credit. And you know, one thing we saw last week is China um, announced that they put some, they're likely to put some export restrictions in place on um, technology to produce polysilicon um, ingots and wafers. Now, we make polysilicon in the U.S., so that's restrictions on exports of that equipment. It's not a concern, but we we don't make the machine tools today to produce ingots in the United States. And most of that equipment now has to necessarily come from China because that's where they produce it. The Chinese government suggested that they're going to block, potentially block that equipment from being sold in the U.S. They have an advantage. China invested hundreds of billions of dollars to support its solar industry. It has protected unfairly, we believe, has protected its polysilicon industry from international competition. And now it's, you know, it's a behemoth and China wants to protect that advantage. So we really need to think about how we use the IRA, 48C, I think in particular, to get companies to build those machine tools here, the equipment that makes the ingot, the equipment that makes the wafer. Um, we also see, we're also supporters of the Defense Production Act. So using the Defense Production Act um, is also another tool to really help in a rapid way scale manufacturing in the United States, not just the output, not just the products, but also the equipment to make those products as well. Brett might be announcing, uh, you might be launching into equipment, <laughs> equipment, equipment manufacturing <laughs> soon. Yeah, yeah I, on the China thing, you know, Abby was quoted yesterday in the Wall Street Journal saying that the China, the potential export restraints are exhibit A in the need to grow manufacturing here in the United States. But but if you're the Chinese government, this is a big threat now, right? It's a huge threat. Yeah, so like threat. from a political standpoint, this should be a winner because if it's a threat to China from a political aspect, that is a winner, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, right? All right? But the problem is, is it really is probably other than Congress, China knows it's a bigger threat than probably even Congress does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's our job collectively over the next few years is to make sure they understand how big this is for the American economy. This right. is the most significant thing that's happened for sure in my lifetime. And I'm old. Yeah. Well, I'm not that much younger than you, you told me at lunch how old you are. I'm not that much younger than you. <laughs> but it is. It is. I mean, there's no doubt this is a transformational piece of legislation. It is, I think, a once in a lifetime opportunity. It will change, you know, change the course of our nation. I absolutely agree with you. And as I think about, you know, like the space, you know, the space race in the 60s or, you know, other moments in our history when we have kind of galvanized technology and innovation, this is it, right? This is our moment. Um, and partly what I find so exciting is like, it is our it is so led by consumers, right? Consumers are demanding clean, reliable, affordable energy, right? That's what you provide, right? That's what we try to create the policies to provide. And so that kind of energy, right, that's really ground up that sounds terrible, ground up energy <laughs> that's coming from consumers, right? It's not like a mandate from the government, but it's really companies and utilities and homeowners and businesses saying I am demanding that you provide me clean, reliable, 
affordable energy and it's like okay let's let's innovate our way into this new way of life yeah and the last thing i'll say on this is i i will disagree like your analogy of the space race of the 60s yeah this is way bigger than that like like there's almost not an analogy that i can think back okay, in I was history to have something that people could relate to. i know it's it's relatable <laughs> but i mean i think that minimizes the impact the scale? in the scale of what this is because we didn't all go to space but Correct. we all use energy. And, and what did that, you know, I don't want to get into NASA and what that meant. This is like, you talk about trans transformational. Yeah. This is going to like, we will be the dominant world power going forward. Then right. we have a whole nother argument to make sure that we utilize right. the dominance that we have for the good of the earth but i mean this thing is amazing like yeah. it's way bigger than the space race of the 60s that's yeah. my point I, I will cede that point to you happily Sorry. no 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 you don't have to apologize i will cede it yeah. to you and we don't even have time for this but think about the impact this can have on our foreign policy right if we are not dependent on other nations for energy sources right but if we are much more contained and manufacture our own energy harness our energy our own energy deploy and and export our tools Imagine what that does to our foreign policy. It's exciting. That's exciting. Yeah, and thinking of the magnitude of the Inflation Reduction Act, the impact it's going to have, we've heard a lot of people say, you know, it's estimated that it's going to be $369 billion worth of energy credits, and mm -hmm. nobody really knows. I've heard as high as a trillion, and whatever the number ends up being, that means that the solar industry is generating that much more because the tax credits are only a, a percentage of right. the overall yeah. overall business. So I think since that happened last year, all of us have been just very excitedly and anxiously waiting to hear what details are gonna come from this. And you guys have talked about it. I thought at some point in January, we were gonna hear a little bit more and now I'm hearing maybe it's in March. Who is the department that is going to roll out these details? Is it the Department of Energy? Is it the Treasury? Who are we waiting on information to get more details as to how these tax credits are going to work? I'm going to give you such a DC lawyer lobbyist answer. Are you ready? Yes. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sales answer yeah. too. Thanks, sales guys thanks. like to use that. Yeah, it's really handy. <laughs> um, so it, it, it different credits or different aspects have different departments. The majority are coming from the Department of Treasury, right? So they have okay. to do with tax credit, so they come out of the United States Department of Treasury. Things like the energy um, communities, there are some elements of that that are very clear, and we actually have those mapped on our on our website, SIA.org. Um, so you can see West Virginia and Pennsylvania, but there are others that are open to interpretation and we need some clarity from the Department of Energy okay. on those. Um, the Department of Labor has been really instrumental in some, we haven't even, well, because it's not as relevant to your business, but apprenticeship programs and prevailing wage, which are important to the the, for, the utility scale companies, you know, they're, they're having a lot of input into the Department of Labor. I will tell you politically, this all flows to the White House, right? everything all of this there is a there is a climate czar john podesta who's went to the white house mm, january no we met with him on his first day yeah. september um september he was at the he got to the white house and his sole job is to ensure that this thing is implemented quickly and most efficient as possible so all things flow up through the white house so 
that's an important thing to know, but it also is another stop on the journey. Um, so it depends. But we spend a lot of time with the Department of Treasury and the Department of Energy. Okay, and I think sales guys, you know, and, and the rest of the the people in the industry that are out selling this product, mm -hmm. they're everyone's talking about what's in section 48, the stackable adders, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we give enough credit to what's in section 25, which, you know, before this was passed, we had 26% tax credit. Yeah. And it was on a path towards stepping down every single year. Yep. We were about to see go down to 22%. And so and then it go got away. extended and then eventually was going to sunset. So it got extended, not for two years, but for 10. 10. And it was an eight point swing because it went, instead of down four points, it went up to back to 30 where it was like that. I think we all just kind of overlooked that because we're all trying to figure out how do we get access to these other stackable adders? Right. But the magnitude of just that one piece alone is, I think, you know, gets overlooked a lot of times because we start figuring out what does this mean? Because when that, when it was passed, what was it, Brett? Like seventy percent of our customers were buying solar via a either loan or purchasing it with cash, and only roughly thirty percent were financing it through a PPA. And it, now yeah, it, it got to 82, 18. Mm. So we were 82% purchasing cash. Yeah. And, and now we're seeing kind of this major transition because those tax credits, those stackable adders are not available to customers who purchase solar directly and they're available indirectly through, uh, through companies that offer PPAs in our mm -hmm. case, that's Sunrun. And so um, we're seeing this massive shift. And so we're all focusing on how does this work and how does this transition happen? And not every state offers a PPA, mm. right? So not every state is going to be able to benefit from some of these adders, uh, some of these tax credits. And so they're, they're going to continue to have to sell the purchase. But I wanted to highlight the 30% tax credit because I've, yeah. I've been in solar long enough to see it. You know, we're in December and it's about to get voted out again, or we're not going to extend it or we're not going to increase it. It's just going to keep stepping down. And, you know, it's gone up and down and and the fact that it was extended for a decade. It was amazing you telling me that, you know, it was just kind of an idea that one of your staff members, hey, let's, let's go for 10 years. Yeah. 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 Isn't that amazing? Fill the budget window. Um, no, I appreciate you saying that because it is right. Like I in my past life, you were you're in private equity. I was a private equity attorney. And so all my clients want they want certainty, right? They want to know what the rules of the road are, so they know how to design their business strategy and you know where to where to move. It's hard to do that when things change in December of every year. You don't know if it's going to step down, you don't know if it's going to get continued, you don't know if it's going to get randomly cut. And so a ten year runway, right? My hope, and tell me if I'm wrong, but my hope and expectation is that that alone gives customers and businesses a fair degree of certainty around kind of what's the baseline, right? Where do we, where can we operate from? Yeah, the adders are awesome. Their adders are amazing, but we at least know 30% for a decade. I mean, that's beyond our wildest dreams. Like, I got to tell you, like, when did this thing happen? This happened in like August. Yeah, it was family vacation. It happened in yeah. August. You know, probably like starting in March, I would have conversation. Like if you, if I saw you at an event, I'd be like, yeah, but this is so great. Um, you know, it might, might not be 10 years, right? Like, I mean, 10 years is what we asked for, but it's like most things. You ask for way more than you want, and of course we're going to negotiate it down. Like, yeah. don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you guys, it was 10 years, and we were like, oh, 
<laughs> but that's where I think like the midnight deal that was cut right? was just cut and paste. It was ten years. No one thought to change it, and they just did Keep it. Moving. Keep yeah, moving. But it's crazy. So, I mean, one question that I wanted to ask because I think people are curious is like, with what you do, and you're a person of power in this industry, and you you know you're looked at as a as a leader. And what is your day like? What is your you know what do you spend your time doing? You obviously got that done. And so I guess since the Inflation Reduction Act, what has your life been like? So I honestly, I really, I feel really strongly about this. Like I, I feel incredibly privileged to have the role I do. Like I get to talk to solar companies, talk to entrepreneurs who are doing incredible things, right? For our planet, for our people, for our future generations. Like I know it sounds a tad bit cheesy, but I love what I do. So I get to lead this incredible team of really committed mission driven professionals. And so my job is to make sure like I am I, I like I like run defense for them, right? Like my job is to make sure that they don't have to deal with any of the difficult stuff. So if anyone's mad, if anyone's fussy, if they don't have the resources they need, if some business is not pleased with them, then that's my job to step in and take that incoming for them so they can keep doing what they're supposed to do. What are we doing all day, every day? IRA implementation, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. what is domestic content? What is an energy community? And also making sure that, the, that the, the community we serve, the solar and storage industry, knows what's happening, right? So we've done a ton of education, um, making sure that businesses know here, you know, here are the rules of the road, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, right? Here's like, don't go selling, I guarantee you a 70% credit because that A, that's not true and B, you can't say that yet. So we do a lot of education. Um, what I do on a daily basis, in addition to running um, offense for my guys and my girls is to, and my days, is to um, do a ton of press. <laughs> I do a ton of press. I do a lot of travel, right? I get out and talk to companies. I'm so glad I can travel again because I really like yeah. to be in people's spaces and where they live and work so I can understand what business challenges they're having so we can help solve them. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm not as big as you guys, okay? I'm not nearly as big as you guys, but we have grown, we've grown our headcount about 20% per year over the last couple of years since I've been there and we've more than doubled our revenue. So I'm running a business, right? There, I like, sometimes I remind myself 70 people go to bed every night assuming that I'm gonna be able to pay them on Friday. I mean, you know that feeling, yeah. right? Yes. Yours is a bigger number, but it's still like 70 families depend on SIA to pay their mortgage. And so I, I gotta tell you, I love that part of my job. I love building culture in my organization. I love thinking about how we build team. I love recruiting new people. I love anticipating what the industry needs and like building a s infrastructure to serve it. So I don't know, that's what I do. And I have three kids. <laughs> oh yeah, that too. <laughs> By the way, you've got three kids. Well, not to diminish the 70 families like Brett did with the NASA analogy, but <laughs> there are thousands of families that are relying or benefiting from what SIA is doing. Oh, yeah, Tens of thousands. Maybe that's why I can't sleep at night. <laughs> not to add it's more hundreds pressure. hundreds of thousands. It's yeah, literally probably that Probably millions. Yes. Like, not to add more pressure, Abby, no pressure. Okay. but 70 <laughs> is putting it a little bit small. So one of the other questions that I had um, is what what can the solar industry, the people that listen to this podcast, we, we have thousands and thousands of employees and sales representatives that are independently contracted. They're in they're in tens of thousands of homes 
on a weekly basis, if not mm -hmm. a daily basis. Okay, wow. what can we do for the solar industry, or even more specifically for SIA? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I think um, first of all, I just have so much respect for for that line of work. It's, it's that's hard work, and God bless each and every one of them. Um, I uh, what can they do? They can just be really honest about the the money that people can save by going solar, right? Like when we we do lots of research, we do lots of research about messaging and communications and. Um, we do it sort of from a political advocacy side, like what messages resonate. Um, I'm sure you probably do it from a marketing side. People have really um, pretty significant misconceptions about solar. They think it's expensive and they think it's unreliable. And so, you know, your team on the ground is the best ambassadors to say, hey, let me share some facts with you, right? It is both affordable, can save you money, and is intensely reliable. Like, that's it. Right, like nothing beyond what they're doing now. But as we think about winning the win, right? It, we're gonna like we're gonna win it because people, more people demand it, and more people accept it, and more people want it. And so those folks on the ground in the kitchen, my my I, my I worked for a governor for five years, and he would always say, Abby, you gotta explain it to Mrs. Perchinski when you're sitting around the kitchen table. If you can't <laughs> explain it to Mrs. Perchinski when you're sitting around the kitchen table, figure out another way to say it. And so that's why I keep talking about the kitchen table. We actually had yeah. a, I, I never told you this story. We had, um, he had in his office, in the governor's office, this kitchen, literally this round wooden kitchen table that we took on the campaign trail. And like he would have people in and sit around the kitchen table and talk about what was happening in their lives. And then it was in his office, in the governor's office. And so I think about that a lot. Like your, your folks are around the kitchen table talking about money, like family budgets, what are they spending their resources on and like how can they make the best decisions for their families so that's what you know that's what i would ask them to do not for sia but for sort of all of us is to say share the truth like share the reality that solar going solar saves you money and is a better choice for your family yeah this goes you know brett we've mentioned on several podcast episodes that these sales reps are the ones that are talking to the customers they're educating the customers and you know, there's there's kind of two types of two ways it can go. The sales rep can either overcharge the customer and just try and make as much money as they can, mm -hmm. or they can treat the customer fairly, which we believe is what you know is going to continue to perpetuate the industry. So, anything to add to that, Brett? Yeah, and there there's a real a lot of people are going all right. There is a lot of there's a there's a lot of unethical people in every industry mm -hmm. but it seems like there's a higher percentage of unethical people in the solar industry and it comes from the fact that it's just the customer doesn't understand what they're paying for electricity everybody knows how much they paid for gas the last time they filled up mm -hmm. but no one knows they know the dollar amount that they spend but they don't know the unit of cost and because of that, it just creates confusion. And there's so many people out there saying different things. A lot of people are going to like, how do we self-regulate? All right, anybody that really knows the industry knows there is one solution to regulate. And that is price caps on a per state basis, making sure that you get close to a bill swap or cost savings to the customer. That will eliminate 98% of the unethical behavior and even flat out fraud. But the harsh reality that no one wants to talk about is that um, we, as an industry, we deserve the reputation that we have, mm -hmm. all right? And it's up to us to change it. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, 
We need people that really look at this and do it the right way, mm-hmm. all right? And until we do that, we need something to regulate it. And it's very simple. Price caps stop everything. When you talk about overcharging for a product, you can't do it if there's a price cap in that state. Mm-hmm. And the companies that can control that are the finance companies. And so somehow we have to work with you guys, the finance companies, to come up with price caps that stop this right now. It can be done. We could get six CEOs in a room. I can name them all and (laughs) it will fix it. All right. And if you're putting the customer first, you're not going to have, I think, some of the legal issues that people are concerned about getting six CEOs of competing companies in the same room. And uh, it just, it needs to stop and it needs to stop now. People that work in the industry, the salespeople, the installers, they should be so proud of what they do, mm-hmm. all right? And when you go, whether it's your weekly Bible study or you're going out to a cocktail party on Saturday and you talk and you say, I work in the solar industry, instead of people scoffing at you, they need to be go, wow, thank you so much for what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will. We stand ready. So John and I have what, like an hour plus drive back to our hotel tonight. So I, you have my word that for after I call the insurance guy that I have to call, um, we are going to talk the other 58 minutes about sort of very immediate next steps because I agree wholeheartedly with you that this needs to be addressed. Yes, and then the last thing I'd love to touch on is net metering 3.0. Yes. All right, and um, you know we talked about the amazing Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. but one of the most disappointing things mm-hmm. in the last eight years I've seen in this industry is to see a progressive state that is predominantly Democrats. I'm a Republican myself, Mm -hmm. all right? And for net metering 3.0 to go so far, all right, to hurt the consumer is just mind-boggling to me. So I I asked you, started asking, hey, how did the Inflation Reduction Act happen? How the heck did net metering 3.0 actually get passed? I mean, I know... The CPUC, I know it was unanimous. You know, I know about the two hours of people saying how bad it was for our industry. Right. How did that happen? <sighs> Do you hear that long sigh? Um, <laughs> so, first of all, you, I mean, you know, it was like this is no consolation, but it was worse and it got a little less worse. Yes. That doesn't mean it's good by any means. I think what happened is that. Um, I think it was a combination of things. One, I think it was that the sort of deep penetration of solar here in California and that sort of the the way that the grid operated and the way that the duck curve moved and the you know, sort of some of those challenges that weren't addressed in a more holistic way created this impression, A, that like sort of the, the grid was a problem and, and more penetration of solar alone was gonna cause problems to you have outages here and sort of those forced power outages and sort of challenges that we don't like we don't have that and I'm from DC and Maryland Johnny's from DC and Maryland we don't have that on the east coast so there's sort of a a very geographic specific location specific experience that you're having and I think there's a consumer protection element right if I think about some of the commissioners that were particularly influential in some of these decisions they were really focused on consumer protection. There's sort of this equity lens that we can have a very vigorous debate. We certainly took a very different position, but this idea that solar was for um, more privileged people and that it wasn't really reaching kind of the entirety of the of communities 
um, gave gave credence to this idea that we should be rolling back some of the net metering. So I think that pairing it with storage and 3.0 is a way to address maybe one and two that I talked about, right? Um, but we agree with you. Sort of the underpinnings of the decision are, are uh, you know, we don't agree with them. We don't think it's best for the consumers. You're, you are a disruptor, right? Our industry is disruptive. We disrupt established business models. We disrupt established utility business models. We disrupt established fossil fuel business models. And so people are going to come after us. They're going to do it in a variety of ways, in a variety of different um, venues. And this is one of them, right? This is clearly one of them. But like those kinds of relationships, making sure that regulators who are ultimately, right, the decision makers in these proceedings understand the value of solar, understand the value that we bring to consumers. That's what we do all day, every day at SIA, right? We are doing hand-to-hand -hand combat in California, in Nebraska, in Arizona, in whatever, pick a state. And either we or one of our affiliates is there fighting these battles. Um, but it is, it is jobs, energy savings, reliable energy that we're bringing. And we got to keep hitting that message. But I, we should expect more of this, right? We're trying to take market share, disrupt business models. You know, transformation doesn't happen. It's not smooth, right? If we're going to change the economy and transform the way we fuel our entire world, there's going to be disruption and people are going to be upset at us. All right. My last question is uh -oh, um, we have, you know, we have a lot of like CEOs of other installation companies and residential solar that listen to this podcast. Hi, friends. Um, and one of the things, um, uh, I don't know what their motives are, but I just know that it happens. <laughs> and I also know that I believe residential solar is underrepresented on SIA's board. We're on SIA's board. Yes. All right. If you were talking to them, mm -hmm. all right, why is it important for them to be a part of SIA? Yeah. No, um, We. you know, we have we have a fairly good representation of residential companies on SIA's board, residential companies, reg residential technology providers. Um, and we appreciate your mem your board membership. But why is it important? It's important because we're the ones in the White House on a weekly basis. We're the ones in the halls of Congress and in the governor's offices and in the regulatory commissions. And we need to hear directly from those companies about what they need. Like, we, I mean, we're honestly, we're servant leaders, right? Like we, our job is to really listen to companies and then advocate on what's best for their business models. And if they're not engaged and not sharing with us what is best for their business models, like we're really bad mind readers. So we don't know. So we need that engagement and we need that participation because therefore we can go to these places where decisions are made. Sometimes they're made in very public places and sometimes they're not. And most of the time, one of us is there. I'll give you, we weren't there when Manchin <laughs> made his decision, but we were there, as John said, in all the moments leading up to it, right? Right before the deal was cut, we were in all of those rooms. And so we need to be informed about what the industry needs. And that's why the investment and the time is so important. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for your guys' leadership and your service. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I know you guys work all day in the political aspect of this industry, and but for us, what you guys have done with the Inflation Reduction Act is you've essentially taken politics out of it for all of us. We now, regardless of what side of the aisle anybody is on, we now know that this is a viable industry that we can work in for at least the next decade and beyond, because by that point, we believe that costs will have come down and the industry will have only gotten that much more momentum. And so 
100%. Thank you guys for what you do and what you've done. It, it really is a turning point in the industry for the better. So thank you guys for coming. Her name is Abby Hopper. She's the CEO of SIA and John Smirnow, the SVP. And thank you guys for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.